Well, welcome everybody. Thanks for coming out. Thanks if you're watching live. Thank you for joining us online. And uh, thankful to everyone who made it possible for us to, to meet here. Who are set up and running tech and baby uh, babysitting as well. So we are doing uh, our seminar. It's a two-part seminar on uh, covenant and kingdom, studying these two issues of covenant theology and eschatology. So very weighty topics. Uh, but I, I thought it'd be good to start off just by mentioning why we're doing this seminar. So uh, first of all, I'll say I've been wanting to teach on eschatology. I think a seminar for I don't know, it's like a year or two. Me and Tim have been talking about it kind of on and off, but really the time wasn't right, or there's other things going on, other things kind of came before, so it's an issue of theology I really like talking about. I think it's really engaging. Uh, people are always interested in it. But so that's one reason. But secondly, I mean, as we keep saying, the past year has been difficult with disease, divisive politics, fear, riots, looting, moral decay, increasing anti-Christian sentiment in society. You know, and times like these kind of make us think like it's getting bad. Is this getting close to the end? It, it always kind of stirs those conversations. I mean, I've had a conversation with someone asking if, you know, mask mandates are preparing us to submit to the Antichrist. I mean, that's an eschatological question, right? That's a discussion question that has to do with what you think is going to happen towards the end. Well, you know, we have an opportunity and I think a responsibility to discuss what the Bible teaches about the coming of Christ and the end of history. But, you know, I mentioned, I said a lot about eschatology, but Eschatology does not stand alone as its own study, right? Um, it's not a standalone doctrine. It's impacted really by how you read the entire Bible, particularly, you know, uh, prophetic portions in the Old Testament. So Tim and I and the elders uh, wanted to basically start back a little further and lay some groundwork before we talk about eschatology, also talking about, you know, what, how is the Bible arranged? What is its, its, its spine, so to speak? And, you know, how, what is the, the main plot and storyline? And how is it organized? And so we're going to take a look at, uh, at uh, covenant theology as well to understand how the Old Testament uh, is interpreted and fulfilled. And, so, and then we'll kind of use that to, to take a look at what does the Bible say also about the end. So our purpose really, you know, is not to start a theological debate or to you know, throw out a whole bunch of confusing lingo and add confusion. You know, honestly, we're going to be opening up and looking at uh, points five and six of our expanded doctrinal statement, because these are things we've always had in our doctrine that we've always, the elders believe and teach. And so we're hope, I'm hoping that this discussion will help us think through things, will encourage us and challenge our thinking, uh, and, and most of all, grow in love with God and his word and grow in hope in his promises. So if you have grabs notes in the back there, um, you'll just quick outline of what tonight's going to look like. We're going to start talking about, well, what is covenant theology? And we'll talk about how that's reflected in our expanded doctrinal statement. We'll look through the unfolding covenants in Scripture. How does this play out in the story of Scripture? And then we'll look at some principles for interpreting the Old Testament covenantally. Then we'll take a break. And if you haven't gotten coffee or snacks yet or you need a refill, you'll have an opportunity then to get some. Uh, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about another way of looking at Scripture called dispensationalism, which many of you may be familiar with. And so we'll kind of take a look at that, examining it uh, and weighing it, and then we'll continue talking about how the Old Covenant is fulfilled in Christ and the Church. We'll go through some more issues of interpretation, and then we'll open it up at the end uh, for hopefully about a 15 or 20-minute Q&A section. So with that said, with the whole Q&A, I would ask that um, you... Please hold any questions you have until the end. We could very easily, every 10 or 15 minutes, say, do you have any questions? But 
We just really have a lot of stuff to go through, and so just if you've got a question, even if it's 45 minutes later from when we talked about it, please write it down, and we'll, we'll give you an opportunity to, to ask both of us at the end. If you're watching online, um, please feel free. You know, if you're watching live, to, uh, you can ask questions in the chat box, in the comment box uh, of the live stream, and Michelle is going to be monitoring that. If you're not watching live, your questions will not be answered, but they will be stored in the Internet forever. So thank you for writing those down. Um, so next week, though, we will, this is continuing the following week, where we'll kind of focus more on the kingdom and the second coming of Christ. And so we'll take everything we've built upon and examine the various schools of thought of eschatology, including, you know, uh, the, you know what different views of the millennium. And then we'll talk about, you know, which view we think best accords with or views best accord with uh, our doctrinal statement. As always, you know, I kind of always give this disclaimer in case anyone's disappointed. These are huge topics, and even taking a total of four hours to talk about them, we're just simply not going to be able to cover every passage, every issue in depth. It's, it's something of a survey and trying to be broad rather than deep. So uh, I do encourage you to, uh, to keep track of your questions. Feel free to buy myself or Tim a cup of coffee, and we would love to sit with you and talk much deeper about these things if you have more questions, or shoot an email or a phone call afterwards, whatever we can't cover. We'd love to continue that. So uh, with that said, uh, I'd like to go ahead and pray for us, and then uh, we'll get started. Lord God, we just first of all thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Your word is wise. Your word is good, filled with hope and promises. Lord, we thank you that by your grace you save sinners, that by your glorious plan you save a people for yourself through Christ. And so, Lord, as we look at the story of Scripture, we want to come humbly. We want to come hungry, Lord, and learn from your word. I pray for Tim and myself that you'd fill us with your spirit. And, Lord, we, we recognize that we are um, weak men, Lord, who need your spirit, Lord. And we don't get everything right, so we ask for your grace. But, Lord, as we look at your word, as we look at your plan... Lord, your plans um, as worked out through Scripture and your plans for the future. God, we marvel at your wisdom and your power and your love. So, God, may we learn from you tonight. And with humility, um, uh, may we hold these things, God, even if it's unclear, Lord, to us. Help us to walk in faith. Lord, be, be glorified here tonight and give us understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, awesome to be with you guys. Hello to those of you watching online. Um, am I, do I sound loud to you? It sounds loud to me up front. You okay? A little loud? Okay. Um, <clears throat> no, I'm super excited about tonight. As Matt said, we've been talking about this for probably close to two years, about an opportunity to lay out some uh, deep theological thoughts, many, many of our questions related to how we live now, the future, what's going to happen at the return of Christ are really deeply rooted in broader, bigger questions of theology. As Matt said, how we read and interpret the Bible. I'm super excited. I'm going to keep looking over at Matt and, and he's just going to do this. If I get, if I get too amped up and start talking too fast, just means I'm excited, but Matt will slow me down. Um, you know, these, these are things that I, I, I really hold near and dear to my heart when it comes to talking about uh, covenant theology, the storyline of Scripture, reading Christ as the center of all of Scripture. Um, when I uh, began at seminary in, uh, what was it, hon, 98? No, 99. 99. Um, I, I was really ignorant about a lot of these deep, uh, deep um, 
and, and bigger picture questions. And it was really at Westminster Theological Seminary that I learned how to read the Old Testament with Christ at the center, how to interpret um, the Old Testament in the way the New, New Testament authors lead us. And so it's something that really just revitalized my love for the Lord, my understanding of Scripture, my love for Scripture. And um, if you're wondering what covenant theology is and you've been at Living Hope for any length of time, particularly when we've studied an Old Testament book, my hope and my prayer is that by God's grace, the way we've read and interpreted and applied the Old Testament is through the lens, through the perspective of covenant theology. And so even now in the book of Judges, um, we are reading it with Christ in the center, reading it with God's um, big picture covenant of grace in mind. And so what are we talking about tonight? We're talking about Jesus. And so, of course, I'm excited. Um, what is covenant theology? If you have your notes in front of you, we're going to be looking at six big picture questions today. The first is, what is covenant theology? Covenants are the means by which God deals with his people. The means by which he accomplishes his purposes in history, redeems his people, and establishes his kingdom. You have a quote there from a, a book called God of the Covenant that says this, The idea of covenant is fundamental to the Bible story. At its most basic, covenant presents God's desire to enter into relationship with men and women created in his image. This is reflected in the repeated covenant refrain, I will be your God and you will be my people. Covenant is all about relationship between the creator and his creation. I will be, I will be your God, you will be my people. That is at its fundamental basic level covenant of course all humans have a creator creature relationship with god just by the very nature that god created us we have some connection to him right we all have a very basic duty to worship god to obey the creator it's a, it's a natural arrangement you might say but covenants take that natural arrangement and, and they formulate special particular arrangements which god initiates with an individual or a group um, so we commonly talk, you know, 21st century evangelicals, we talk about being in relationship with God. I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's biblical. But we can ask a, a, a more pressing question, what does relationship look like, right? I mean, I, I could say to you, um, you know, well, I'm in a relationship with Karen. But that doesn't adequately describe the reality that we are married, right? It is a covenant relationship that I have with my, my wife. And I think the marriage covenant really is the closest thing that we have in our society to understanding the biblical idea of covenants, um, right? I'm not, I'm not just in a relationship with a woman. I am in a marriage covenant with my wife, okay? So covenants take our relationship with God and define them and, and make them more, more uh, specialized and, and more specific, right? A covenant is similar to a contract, you might say. We can talk about a marriage contract, Right? But beyond just being legal, right, there's, there's, a, there's a depth, there's a relationship, there's even a love aspect to it. So definition of covenant you have there in your notes. Covenant is a legal and relational agreement initiated by God to establish and secure the conditions and expectations for a binding relationship with his people. So it's an agreement. It's both legal and relational. It is initiated by God. It's secured by God. He gives conditions and expectations for the relationship that he has with us, and it's binding, right? God sets the terms of the covenant relationship, including the conditions and obligations, things that we are obligated to, the promises and the blessings, the promises of God and the blessings that, that follow, and the penalties and the curses if we break the covenant, 
So you could really say that covenants form the backbone of the Bible's meta-narrative. So each individual story in the Bible is a narrative, but we believe that the Bible has a meta-narrative. In other words, a big-picture storyline narrative that every story, character, account, prophecy, promise, symbol is, is woven together into a meta-narrative, a, a, the story of redemption. And without properly understanding the nature of biblical covenants, how those covenants relate to each other, it's very difficult for us to correctly discern the message of the Bible. We have another quote there in your notes from Thomas Schreiner, why we must understand the covenants to understand the Bible. He says, The Bible is not a random collection of laws, moral principles, and stories. It is a story that goes somewhere. It is the story of redemption, the story of God's kingdom, and the story unfolds and advances through the covenants God made with his people. To quote yet another scholar, J.I. Packer, he says that covenant theology is a hermeneutic. Hermeneutics is the study of, of, of principles of interpretation. How do we interpret the Bible? He says that covenant theology is a hermeneutic. It's a way of reading and interpreting Scripture that Scripture itself provides. Now, some of you need to be convinced of that, right? That covenant theology is a lens through which we read Scripture. And, and I would say, the elders would say, that the Bible itself gives us that lens. Okay? It's the perspective which understands the entire storyline of Scripture through the lens of God's covenant, and ultimately, God's eternal covenant of redemption. Now, covenant of redemption is a very specialized theological technical term that relates to God's covenant within himself, the, the, the three persons of the Trinity covenanting before eternity began to redeem their people, the covenant of redemption. It's also called the covenant of grace. Covenant of redemption is God's covenant within himself to redeem his people. Covenant of grace is God's covenant that he has revealed to his people in scripture through a variety of old testament covenants that we'll see coming to fulfillment in the new covenant so covenant theology sees the old testament and the new testament sees israel and the church sees christ's first coming and his second coming all the biblical covenants united in god's covenant of redemption culminating and climaxing in the new covenant the new covenant that comes to us through the work of christ that he has established to bring his kingdom to earth. So we, we see unity, right? We see consistency. We see a single storyline. Of course, those of us that hold the covenant theology, we would say, well, yes, it's rooted in the word of God. Yes, it's been articulated throughout church history. Um, but it's fair to say, like many central doctrines of the church, that covenant theology was, was uh, articulated anew at the time of the Protestant Reformation the time of the Protestant Reformation where many saints and theologians were literally reading the Bible for the first time and began to see and began to be awakened to the storyline of Scripture. Covenant theology is central to the Reformed tradition. Um, Baptists in the Reformed tradition, Presbyterians in the Reformed tradition will have some differences, some of them perhaps significant about their understanding of covenant theology, but either way it is, it is central. And so if you read a Presbyterian document like the Westminster Confession of Faith, written in 1647. If you read the London Baptist Confession of 1689, both of them are going to articulate very similar understandings of what we're talking about tonight, covenant theology. Um, you can see there, and we've mentioned our expanded doctrinal statement. I want, to, to, want you to know that these are, are not new realities. These are realities for the last 14 years of Living Hope Church that we have held to. Um, uh, section 5 of our expanded doctrinal statement says that God the Son, Jesus Christ, came to earth to fulfill the covenant with Israel by establishing a new covenant in his blood 
thereby reconciling one unified people to God. We're going to articulate some of those things as, as we move forward about God, uh, Jesus coming to fulfill the covenant, about one unified people um, in God. Section 6, looking at, at eschatology, looking at the study of the end times, the last days, says that God the Son, Jesus Christ, will come again to the earth in bodily form at an unknown time, bringing to completion God's plan of redemption secured at his first coming. So his second coming is completing that which was secured at his first coming. You could say the first coming is the inauguration, the second coming is the consummation, like a wedding consummation. Um, you may have picked up on your way in a little article by Vern Poitras. Um, he was actually one of my seminary professors, one of the editors of the um, ESV study Bible. Um, there's no one translation that always gets it right. There's no one study Bible that has, has the answer to everything. But I do love the ESV study Bible. find it to be a great resource. Um, uh, Vern Poitras was a big contributor there. He's got this article called The Survey of the History of Salvation. If these things don't make sense, if you want further reading, if you want to, something to pass on to someone else, uh, this article is a great resource. It is, uh, the PDF is linked online um, on the, uh, the class announcement. Um, what we're studying tonight um, is, is crucial to how we read the Bible and crucial to eschatology, the study of the end times. Um, I'm sure my wife would be happy to make room for you if you guys want to come sit on the front row. Hun, you want to scoot over and they can join you? Um, good to see you guys. So, what is covenant theology? Hopefully I've given you at least some sense of, of an answer to that. Secondly, what are the main covenants of the Bible and how do they fit together? So we're saying that there's a big picture covenant, right? God's eternal covenant of redemption that he's revealed to his people as the covenant of grace throughout scripture. But there are, are a variety of covenants that we believe are strung together, so to speak. Um, you have a quote there from a book by Palmer Robertson, a bit of a, a covenant theology classic called The Christ of the Covenants. And he says this, covenant theology understands the whole of history after man's fall into sin as unifying under the provisions of the covenant of redemption, or more traditionally, the covenant of grace, beginning with the first promise to Adam in sin and continuing throughout history to the consummation of the ages, God orders all things in view of his singular purpose of redeeming a people to himself. So the first covenant we come across in the Bible, and, and no, the, the book of Genesis, um, when it talks about the creation account, does not use the Hebrew word for covenant. Um, but there is a covenant with, with Adam. God creates the world. He sets Adam and Eve as his representatives to rule over creation. Of course, we all know that rather than obey and walk in obedience, they disobey and they end up receiving God's curse. And so after the fall, God establishes a promise in Genesis 3.15, right? The first instance of, of the gospel, the first promise of, of God's covenant to save his people, that through the offspring of the woman, the serpent will be crushed, and, and, and we see this covenant of grace beginning there in Genesis 3.15 that will ultimately be fulfilled through the seed of the woman, through the new Adam, Romans 5 says, through Christ. The fulfillment of that promise. We can talk secondly about the covenant with Noah, right? As the consequences of Adam and Eve's rebellion sort of spiral out of control, there's corruption that so permeated the world that God ends up sending a flood to cleanse and to begin again. But his, his covenant has not ended Right? Because after the flood, God establishes a new covenant with Noah and his descendants. He promises to never again destroy the world with a flood and, and con con to continue to carry out his plan of redemption. Now, from the descendants of Adam and, and ultimately the descendants of Noah, 
God further narrows, and we'll talk about this more specifically later on, but he narrows his covenant promises to one man, to Abraham, right? Chooses Abraham there, beginning in Genesis 12, reaffirming it in Genesis 15, again in Genesis 17. That Abraham and his descendants are God's chosen covenant people, and they will receive the fulfillment of the covenant with three promises. And we can look at the Abrahamic covenant as, as people, land, and blessing. So people, he says that you will be multiplied, that your offspring will be no, more numerous than the stars of the sky. With land, that God will give them an eternal homeland. And then with blessing, that not only will, will God, Yahweh, bless the descendants of Abraham, but through them he promises to bless all the nations of the earth. So... Abraham fathers Isaac, Isaac fathers Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Right? This is the covenant, the promise continues through the line of Abraham. They're enslaved in Egypt, they're redeemed from Egypt, and they come to Mount Sinai under Moses' leadership, and, and the giving of the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law, is a covenant renewal. God renewing his covenant with his people. And, and the covenant with Abraham extends out to all of the... the the nation of Israel, they are formulated as a nation there at, at Mount Sinai. And, and the covenant is, is refined and clarified with stipulations, with responsibilities, with laws, with blessing, blessings, and with curses that are given to God's people through Moses. And so we can talk about this as the covenant with Israel through Moses. Sometimes it's called the Mosaic Covenant. Sometimes it's, it's just called the, the Old Covenant. But then something additional happens that this covenant of redemption this covenant of grace to send a savior through the seed of the woman it flows through adam we've seen through noah through abraham but then it's further narrowed you could say with a very specific promise that comes to king david right the covenant with david that through his line we read in uh shoot is it first or second samuel second samuel um that through his line there's going to be an everlasting king right that's going to come to accomplish redemption to rule on an everlasting throne and so we, we read with expectation as, as, as David um, uh, you know, reigns and, there, and there's great success and then Solomon takes over, but eventually we say, wait a minute, none of these kings are really going to fulfill the promises. None of these kings are really going to bring God's kingdom on earth. The kings of Israel are not faithful. The nation spirals out of control into unfaithfulness. Eventually the people receive God's judgment. They're exiled from the land that had been given to them, promised to them. And so God's covenant with David seems to be going nowhere, seems to, to be like it's not going to be fulfilled. And for a time, the old covenant that's centered on Abraham, again, includes the covenant with the nation of Israel. Part of the old covenant is, is the kingly line of David. It seems to be ending in tragedy, right? Israel's not lived as God's people. They've broken the covenant. They've been expelled from the promised land. Of course, some remnants do eventually return to Jerusalem, right? There's kind of rebuild the temple's kind of re but it's, it, everything's in shambles and 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 they're under foreign rule they have no autonomy eventually there's no there's no son of david even sitting on the throne at jerusalem and we sort of think god what what have you done and yet god's eternal plan is ultimately going to culminate in what the new covenant right the new covenant that comes to god's people through christ it was what was prophesied in jeremiah 31 and the New Testament makes clear that the Old Covenant ultimately finds its climax, its fulfillment in Christ. Specifically, I'm going to try to show you this in a minute in Scripture, specifically, not only in Christ, but in His death and resurrection. See, in, in the work of Christ, redemption has been accomplished, the kingdom of God has been established, and that will one day culminate in His second coming. 
what Christ accomplished will be fully realized in his second coming. As my professors used to say, one work of God in two acts. Right? Act 1, his first coming, death and resurrection. Act 2, his second coming in, in judgment and, and restoration. And the period between, between his first coming and his second coming seem really long to us, don't they? Amen? Like, come on, God, hurry up, right? But, but the New Testament says that we are in the last days. When, when the last days are going to begin, they, they began when Jesus ascended back up into heaven. His first and second coming are one unified work. We can really say that when Jesus uh, came the first time, he didn't come to start something new. He came to finish something very, very old that will fully and finally be culminated in his second coming when he finishes um, his, his work of redemption and, and, and his covenant that has been promised throughout the ages to, to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses, to David. So we read here, you have Abr- uh, Hebrews 6 there in your notes. Hebrews 6, of course, quoting from Jeremiah 31, really crucial passage in terms of how we understand the Old, to- old Covenant in relation to the New Covenant. I'm going to read it in its entirety. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But he, God, finds fault with them when he says, and then the author of Hebrews goes on to quote here from Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. Now, here's what's interesting. Let me pause here for a minute. He's talking about the house of Israel, the house of Judah, but he's, he's, he's saying this is now fulfilled in the followers of Christ. That the covenant, the new covenant promised to the house of Israel and the, promise, uh, and, the, and, the, and the house of Judah, the author of Hebrews is talking about Jesus as our high priest, talking about Jesus as, as the better Moses, talking about Jesus as the, the full and final sacrifice. He's saying this new covenant that Jeremiah promised is now fulfilled in Jesus and those who follow him, whom here are called the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The gospel. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so the author of Hebrews looks at that promise of of the new covenant in Jeremiah, and he says the time is coming when the people of God are filled with the Spirit that we don't have to say, no, no, know the Lord, for we will will all know the Lord because God will have remembered our sins no more. And and the work of Christ is, is being realized. His kingdom has come on earth as it is in heaven through the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, culminating, of course, in his second coming. If you, if you flip, to, flip to the next page, for those of you that like diagrams, some of you are going to think these are just confusing and unhelpful. For others of you, it's going to put it all together. For me, it kind of puts it all together. But in the book, God's Kingdom Through God's Covenant, uh, Gentry and Wellam have these two, two diagrams that are essentially communicating the same thing. They're not communicating different things. They're just looking at them um, from different perspectives. So the first one there is really looking at scope. 
So I know the print is kind of small, but if you look there at, at God's covenant of creation, right, it, the scope is very broad, very big, right? All humanity, in a sense, is a part of God's covenant of creation. You then see the, the, the Noahic covenant, the covenant with Noah, okay, which, which goes out to all of the descendants of Noah, which you and I all are, right? Um, and you see the covenant of creation and the covenant of Noah essentially continue, right? The way God ordered creation, uh, God's promise never to never again flood the earth, that, that continues. And so, so those lines drop all the way down. But then you see this Abrahamic covenant, right? And it's got that little dot at the top. And that essentially means that this covenant began with one guy, one guy named Abram at the time, right? And then it, it broadens out, and we see the Israelite covenant, the, the covenant uh, with Moses. And then you've got another dot there in the midst of, so the, the covenant with Abraham includes the, the Israelite covenant. And then you've got another dot there referring to the Davidic covenant. By the way, if you're watching from home, these notes are all available online. Hopefully you found them already on the uh, event for this seminar. And the covenant with David, there's a single line going down, right? That through his line, through his descendants, the Messiah will come. Again, you see that, that diagram culminating, coming back, narrowing back into one dot. Well, what's the one dot? It began with the one man, Abraham, and it finds its fulfillment in the one man, Jesus. And then we see the covenant going out, the new covenant, the new people of God, Jew and Gentile. Again, the diagram at the bottom kind of going from left to right instead of top to bottom. Instead of focusing on scope, this diagram at the bottom is communicating essentially the same thing, but focusing on the, on the partners, on the roles. So you see there the covenant with Adam, extending out the sons of Adam. Then we have the flood, and the, and the covenant is, is renewed with, with Moses. goes out um, as, the, as the people of God, or excuse me, as the, as the inhabitants of, of earth extend out, um, the sons of Noah grow. And then again, we come back to Abraham. And then through Abraham, we see the covenant going back out again to Israel, to the sons of David, again, coming to, to, to climax in the one man, Jesus, who fulfills the new covenant. And then the covenant goes out to every tongue, tribe, and nation, um, Jesus and his people. So they summarize this way, that quote that you have in your notes. As one biblical covenant leads to the next, all of them find their telos, which is a Greek word, their terminus, their, their end point, find their telos and fulfillment in Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. When the new covenant arrives, we have the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises, the reversal of the effects of sin and death, brought about by Adam, and the establishment of the new creation. Ultimately, all prophetic hope is tied to the dawning of the new covenant age. In the new covenant, all of God's promises are fulfilled. In the New Testament, it is clear that the new covenant texts are applied to Christ and the church, which includes both Jews and Gentiles, individually and corporately. Christians are God's new covenant people, and it is in Messiah Jesus and I love this, the last Adam, the true Israel, David's greater son, that all of God's promises are fulfilled. In Christ, Jew and Gentile are now the one new man, the church. Together and equally, we inherit all of God's promises in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Listen to this, and we'll, we'll unpack this later after the break. God has not replaced Israel by the church. Instead, he has brought Israel's role to its fulfillment in Christ and to Christ's people. There are no outstanding promises for national Israel which are not first fulfilled in Messiah Jesus and then given to Christ's people, the church, comprised of believing Jews and Gentiles. Now, I know that was jam-packed. Okay, We are going to come back to, to some of these concepts later on. 
right? The idea that, that there's one new man, Jew and Gentile. The idea that the church has not replaced Israel. Rather, Israel is fulfilled in Christ. The idea that, that there are no promises that are outstanding that have not been fulfilled through Christ. So, again, second question we've been talking about for the last few minutes is what are the biblical covenants and how are they tied together? The, the simple answer is they're, they're tied together and fulfilled in Christ. They all point forward. They all are climaxing in Jesus. Let's look at this third question before we take our break. I, I want to step back for a minute. Um, some of you are, are, are maybe um, well-read and, and came in here understanding covenant theology. Others of you may hold to dispensational theology, which, by the way, we love you and we're glad you're here and, and you're a part of Living Hope Church. And, and we are unified even, even when we... Uh, even when we disagree, we can stand together in humility and love and unity, even when we don't always share convictions. Um, some of you are just trying to process all of this, and you're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're making a lot of conclusions, right? You're interpreting uh, uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 8. You're, you're looking at some of these Old Testament concepts. What are, the, what, are the, what are the key principles? How are you reading the Bible that leads you to these principles? Okay, we all, we all have hermeneutics. As I said earlier, hermeneutics are just the, the, the principles you use to interpret something you're reading. You can have hermeneutics for reading poetry, hermeneutics for reading uh, the newspaper. Um, but we're talking about, of course, biblical hermeneutics. What are the principles that help us understand the Bible? Um, there are some basic hermeneutic principles that all Christians agree on, right? We all agree that, that, that Scripture is divine, that it's been authored by God, and that God used hum, human authors. So one of the principles of hermeneutics is that we have to take into account the divine authorship and the human authorship. We have to recognize we are reading God's eternal word to us, and we are, in a sense, reading somebody else's mail, right? Ephesians is a letter that Paul wrote to some Christians, and we, are, we are, have intercepted their mail. And, and, and we're not going to understand the book of Ephesians unless we understand God's eternal purpose and his authorship, nor unless we understand what was going on in Ephesus and, and, and the culture and the context of the time. So that's a principle that we all agree on. Another principle of hermeneutics is that passages must be understood in their context. Right? You can pull anything you want out of context and, and make it mean nearly anything you want. No, we read the Bible in context. Um, another principle is that Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. What that means is that if you come to a Bible passage that you don't understand, the best way to understand it is to look at other passages of Scripture that speak about the same thing, right? You use more clear passages of Scripture to help you understand less clear passages of Scripture, all right? Another principle of hermeneutics is that different literary genres, so you've got uh, poetry, history, epistle, uh, gospel, prophecy, Right? Different literary genres need to be interpreted differently. Okay? So you, you talk to any teacher and they'll tell you that when you teach your, their students how to read a history book, there's different things that need to be taken into account than when you're reading poetry. Same is true of the Bible. But there are some other principles of interpretation that, that lead us to uh, um, an understanding of covenant theology that I believe the Bible itself supports. I believe the New Testament authors actually use these principles to interpret the Old Testament. And there are several key principles. Some of what is outlined in your notes I've taken from Sam Storms. He's got a book on amillennialism called Kingdom Come. He outlines five principles for interpreting prophecy, and many of them, specifically the first three, help us uh, understand and interpret the Bible generally. So the first principle that is kind of behind some of our convictions and some of the ways we read the Bible is this idea of progressive revelation. 
Progressive Revelation says that, that God's unfolding plan of redemption has been revealed progressively. So if you read Genesis chapter 1, you're not going to find out everything you need to know, right? Pretty, pretty, pretty uh, uh, hopefully, common uh, understanding. This is, this is progressive revelation. is sometimes called biblical theology. Now, that's a technical term. So every, obviously, everybody that has theology wants to be biblical. But biblical theology is, is a specific discipline that says we want to trace specific themes and theological concepts through the development of the Bible. So, so for instance, you know, uh, Genesis chapter 3.15 that says that, that God is going to crush the head of the serpent. How is that theme progressively fulfilled? And you can trace the passages and references and ideas about the seed of the woman and, and how they're kind of traced down through the theology of the Bible progressively, okay? Um, and so this idea of progressive revelation and biblical theology is, is the idea that there is an overarching narrative, right? We said this at the beginning, okay? The Bible is not a random collection of laws and stories and examples. The, the Bible is not just different narratives. There's a meta-narrative. There's a, there's a big-picture story being told that is climaxing in Christ. Christ himself says that. Um, the Old Testament authors are looking ahead. The Old Testament authors themselves recognize they don't have the full picture, right? They are anticipating realities that are unknown to them, realities that are unpacked and explained in the New Testament. And so the New Testament is going to look back at, at what was written earlier in the, in the process of Revelation. The New Testament is going to look back at what was foreshadowed from the vantage point of Christ and his death and resurrection. And so they're going to look back from the vantage point of salvation history that's already realized in Christ. And so here's what that means. That means that, that when we read the Old Testament, we need to read it through the lens of the New Testament. Okay? Um, we need to follow the example of Jesus. I'm going to show you a minute in Luke chapter 24 that Jesus himself, the New Testament authors, they read the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. So some have said that the new is in the old concealed. Okay, so, so the new revelation was, was always in the Old Testament. It was just concealed. It was hidden. It was shadowed, right? So the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. Hundreds of times the New Testament authors quote from the Old Testament, revealing the, the full meaning and interpretation of those passages. Um, and so we want to read the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. We don't want to read the Old Testament divorced of Christian meaning. So first principle of, of uh, interpretation. Secondly, this idea of inauguration and consummation. Okay? So what's interesting is that many of the Old Testament prophecies and passages saw um, the consummation of God's redemption. In other words, they knew that the Messiah was coming and knew that God was redeeming the world. But they saw that happening in, in one act. And they looked ahead and, and, and saw everything that God was going to do as though it was all going to happen at the same time. We come to the New Testament and realize that the New Testament authors see the fulfillment of redemption in two phases, two acts, inauguration in his first coming, consummation in his second coming. Right? So his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his, his ascension, accomplish redemption. They really do accomplish it. It really is finished, as Jesus said on the cross. And yet it will not be fully consummated until his second coming. So Christ's first coming inaugurated the end. And the New Testament authors, as I said earlier, make clear we are already in the last days. Okay? And yet, we're still living in the midst of the present evil age. 
right? And so theologians call, talk about this era of being in the already not yet, okay? We're already in the last days. Salvation has already been accomplished, and yet it is not yet fully realized, not yet fulfilled until Christ's second coming. Um, and so God uh, is going to act in Christ to fulfill the prophetic promise, and that consummation will come at his second coming. So, so we see from the New Testament perspective um, the, the first and second coming of Christ, something that I don't think the, New, the Old Testament authors had anticipated, but we do see laid out in the New Testament. Thirdly, this idea of Christocentric, that Christ is at the center of history, of redemption, of Scripture, or what we can say Christotelic, again, going back to that Greek word telos, meaning end point, that Christ is the center of Scripture and He is the end point of Scripture. He is the climax. So the Old Testament is Christian Scripture. That's why we teach and preach from the Old Testament. Okay? And some of you are like, can we please finish up Judges and get to, like, you know, the Gospel of John or something, you know? Um, And yet, I, I think we've seen that God has spoken to us, hasn't He? In the book of Judges. Because it is our Bible. It is Christian scripture. It is written, the Bible says, and I, and I think I have some, some references there in your notes, it is written to lead us to salvation in Christ. Right? Um, First Timothy, 2 Timothy three fourteen to, to 17. Paul says that these sacred writings are there to, to lead you to salvation in Christ. He's, Timothy's, or Paul is writing to Timothy, not about the New Testament, about the Old Testament. The fulfillment of Israel's prophetic hope that was anticipated in the Old Testament is found in the person and work of Jesus. And, and so this idea, I, I, I know what people say when they refer to a messianic, oh, that's a messianic prophecy. I understand that. But be careful with that. Because it's not as though there's all this stuff in the Bible about Israel and about laws and about stuff that doesn't apply to us. And we have to do like a where's Waldo and find the this messianic prophecies that are sprinkled around. No, no, no. It's all messianic. It all is about Jesus. Christ and His church are the focal point, the terminating point of all of the Old Testament. As I wrote in a blog recently, a few weeks ago, the Old Testament is about Jesus. Check out that blog if you have trouble falling asleep tonight. After Jesus rose from the dead, He appeared to His disciples. Go back and look at Luke 24. It says in Luke 24, verse 27, that He interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Man, wouldn't you have loved to be there for that Bible study? You said, let me just tell you everything about me in the Bible. Right? You have in your notes there Luke 24, later on in that chapter. Then he, Jesus, said to them, the disciples that he was walking with, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds. Holy Spirit, please open our minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Now now check this out. There, that is not a direct quote. There is nowhere specifically in the Old Testament where it says, Thus the Christ should suffer and, 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 rise, uh, and on the third day rise again from the dead. Jesus is not quoting a specific verse. He's saying, This is what the Bible is all about. And he refers there to the three classic Jewish understandings of the Old Testament what we can call the Tanakh. Anybody ever heard that in, in reference to, to Jewish scriptures, the Tanakh? The T stands there for Torah, right? We understand those as the first five books, the law of Moses. The N stands for Nevim, the Hebrew word for prophets, 
Now, it's important to understand in the Jewish understanding, the prophetic books, the Nevi'im, were not only our prophets, but, but basically the historical books after uh, the, 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 the books of Moses, um, Samuel and Chronicles and Kings were all considered part of the prophetic literature. And then the K in Tanakh stands for Ketavim, the Hebrew word for the writings, which included Psalms and Proverbs and all of the prophetic literature. Jesus is, is saying, look at the three divisions of the Old Testament, the three main sections in the Jewish mind of the Old Testament. And he's bringing together the entire Old Testament and saying there, it refers to me specifically to my suffering and my resurrection, my death and my resurrection. So how do we read the Old Testament as Christian scripture? We read it with Jesus in the center because Jesus himself says there in Luke 24, it's all about me. And so just as Jesus' life climaxed in his death and resurrection, his redemptive work is the climax of the Old Testament. Every promise, every prophecy, every theme is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. As you see there in your notes, 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. So we can look at this and call it the fulfillment approach, seeing, seeing the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus. And, and I believe that this is how the New Testament authors read the Old Testament. Okay? The Expositor's Bible Commentary has, has a reference, uh, references every direct quote of the Old Testament in the New Testament. They calculate 332 times that the New Testament authors quote from the Old Testament. Now those 332 times are only direct quotes doesn't include paraphrases or allusions or symbolism referring to the Old Testament. Dozens and dozens of times, right? And, and, and when they quote, they're using them to refer to Christ and His redemption and the work of the church. Um, and the New Testament authors are not quoting these things out of context. And, and man, you can, you can read some of these. You, you can read them. Um, um, what is it? Um, Matthew two fourteen and 15, where Joseph and Mary go down to Egypt. And, and Matthew says there in Matthew 2, when they come back, he says, this was to fulfill what was written, out of Egypt I called my son. And you go back and read, and you go back and read that in its original context. And you think, wait a minute, that doesn't seem like it's talking about Jesus. Was, was Matthew quoting that out of context? Well, I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't think the, the divine authoritative word of God would quote it out of context, right? Matthew goes back and he says, no. Out of Egypt I called my son. That's ultimately fulfilled in, in the Messiah, Jesus, who would go down to Egypt to hide from Herod, who is the true Israel, the true Son of God. So look, the Bible is not just good moral teaching. The Bible is not just godly examples that we should be following or theological truths about God. The Bible is the story of Jesus. And the New Testament quotations that we find, I have heard some people say, well, look, you know, those hundreds and hundreds of quotes, they're, they're just, they're kind of exceptions, right? Like, no, they're, not, they're giving us a rule. The New Testament authors again and again and again are quoting the Old Testament saying, when you read the Old Testament, see it as culminating in Christ. As a seminary professor of mine used to say, do not read, do not interpret the Old Testament like you would in a synagogue. And so if I ever preach a sermon, and at the end of the sermon... You say, you know what, I think he could have preached that sermon in a synagogue and they would have smiled and nodded and said, that's a good message. I have not done justice to the text. As a believer in Jesus, I cannot preach, I cannot read, you cannot interpret the Old Testament in such a way that does not find fulfillment in, in Christ that, that Jews in a synagogue. We look for a distinctly 
Christian meaning. So third principle of, of, of hermeneutics, and I'm about to wrap up, is that it's Christocentric, Christotelic. Fourthly is, is typology, another, another principle of interpretation, another, another um, aspect that we, uh, how we read the Bible that leads us to this, this covenant theology mindset that, that will impact our eschatology, that will impact our understanding of the second coming of Christ is called typology. And again, the idea is that there's not just a few messianic prophecies sprinkled throughout the Old Testament, but that every part of the Old Testament, every character, every law, every theme, every symbol, every story, every promise is prefiguring, leading to Christ, what we call a type of Christ. So Vern Poitras explains that a type in the Old Testament is a special example, symbol, or picture that God designed beforehand that he placed in history at an earlier point in time to point forward to a later, larger fulfillment. So that article that, that was on the, the back there, um, Vern Poitras' Survey of the History of Salvation, he talks about typology. And he says that the entire Old Testament is fulfilled, excuse me, is filled with the anticipation. Okay? The Old Testament is filled with the anticipation of Jesus. Where they're anticipating, longing for Christ to come. Character, symbols, themes, prefigure Christ. They are shadows of Christ. So you look at Romans 5.14, where it says that Adam was a type of the Christ who was to come. Okay? If you look at Hebrews 8.5, talking about the temple and the priests, the sacrificial system, and it says there that, that all of these things are a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. Right? And so we can look at, at, at these figures, such as Samson that we talked about this morning. We can look at the, at the ark that Noah and his family climbed upon to, to receive salvation. We can look at the whole Levitical system of the Old Testament. We can look at, at, at the, the Davidic kings. They're all leading forward and, and, and moving forward towards Christ. Now, again, not, maybe not again for the first time, um, we sometimes do need to read the Old Testament in big chunks, Okay. And so we need to look at, at entire stories. That's why last week we looked at three chapters of Judges, right? To, to look at the, the big storyline of Samson. How is the big storyline of Samson fulfilled in Christ? And so that we're, we're reading it from a fulfillment approach, looking for typology. If you pull out a verse of the Old Testament and say, okay, where do I see Jesus in this verse? Sometimes you'll slip from typology in, into allegory, right? So allegory... Is, is what I would say is over-reading the details of the Old Testament in an attempt to see Jesus at, at every turn or in every line. And so when, when David goes down to the brook and chooses five you know, stones from, from the river, well, okay, now we got to, those five stones represent this and that, and, and Jesus five, this, you know, okay, let's, let's look at big picture, right? These narratives sometimes take chapters to kind of come to meaning and, and culminate in Christ. So I, I listed out some passages there in your notes um, you can go back and read some of these. We're not going to look at them now. You can see um, how they use typology, how these references in the New Testament find fulfillment of the Old Testament in Jesus. So, what is covenant theology? It is, it is giving us a narrative, a structure, to see the entire storyline of Scripture through the lens of covenants, culminating in the new covenant in Christ. We talked about what um, the, the main covenants of the Old Testament were, the covenant to Adam, the, to Noah, the covenant to Israel, to, excuse me, to Abraham, the covenant to Israel through Moses, the Davidic covenant, ultimately the new covenant. And then we've just talked about um, these principles, these four principles that lead us to understand the Old Testament through the lens of covenant theology, 
which again, I believe Jesus himself, the New Testament um, itself, um, uses this approach to reading and studying and understanding the Old Testament. So this is, is going to be um, super central to how we read the Bible, super central to how we understand the salvation of Christ, how we understand the relationship between Israel and the church. And for those of you that are like, I just want to talk about end times, super central to understanding the second coming of Christ. And so we're laying a foundation for how to read the Bible, laying a foundation for how to see the centrality of Christ, and ultimately laying a foundation that we'll unpack a little bit this week, but mostly next week for how we see and understand and interpret the second coming of Jesus. So many of you, I hope and pray, have been jotting down questions, have been typing in questions on YouTube. Matt and I are super excited for those questions, but this is all kind of works together. So we want to lay out a few more things before we open it up for some Q&A. For now, catch your breath, get some water, stretch your legs, and we'll be back in five. Sound good? Awesome. You know, we're still making our way back. Okay, hopefully you got a little bit of time to, uh, to clear your head, get something to drink. Um, class, everyone go home and use typology in a sentence this week. It does count if you do it at life group. So just bust it out. Be like, so I have a typology for that. Um, so tell you what, we, so we're, we've been talking about covenant theology, but we also want to talk about uh, another view uh, that is very, very common uh, within the Protestant world, particularly within uh, evangelicalism. And so we're going to talk about dispensationalism. And so it may be a word that you've heard of. Maybe it's a word you're not. Maybe you consider yourself dispensational. Um, and so it's actually one of those things that... Um, uh, you, you may actually believe some of the tenets of dispensationalism without even knowing that's the title. And so um, I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to summarize it and then kind of assess it as well. And hopefully it's helpful to you. So hopefully this is the last big word that we introduce tonight. So we've done a lot of new words, right? So dispensationalism, what is it? Okay, well, it is a system, once again, of organizing and interpreting the Bible. So it's just like covenant theology, right? Um, but there's four unique kind of points to it. And you could say more, but just to be broad, there's kind of four things that are unique about this view. All right, the first thing is that it, 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 it um, summarizes or organizes uh, history in dispensations. Okay, so God's relationship to people groups is organized into distinct and successive time periods. Okay, so it's a, those time periods are called dispensations. So God deals with people differently in these different time periods throughout biblical history. So that's where the name comes from. So typically there is considered seven dispensations. Okay, um, the first is uh, is this uh, is from creation until the fall, and that dispensation, that period, is sometimes called innocence. And in these dispensations, it's actually it sounds similar. Right, But God um, sets some expectations up and to see if people are going to kind of meet it. But he deals with people differently in that time period than he does in other time periods. So the first is innocence. The second is um, the time between the expulsion from the garden until the flood. That is sometimes called this dispensation of conscience. Uh, the third is from the flood until the Tower of Babel. It, within that time period comes the Noahic Covenant. That's sometimes called human government. The fourth is from Abraham to Moses. That's called the dispensation of promise. Then you have from Moses until Christ, the, uh, the kingdom of Israel. That's called the uh, dispensation of the law. What's going on right now between Christ's first coming and second coming 
uh, is sometimes called the church age or the uh, dispensation of grace. And then the seventh and final dispensation is the millennium, the earthly reign of Christ. And so rather than seeing like, so of course they recognize all the the covenants as they unfold in Scripture, but would rather see God's interaction and expectations with human beings is really unique to different periods in history, and they are successive. Okay, so that's kind of the first thing, just a unique way of looking at or the organizing principle of Scripture. Number two uh, is the hermeneutic, the focus on uh, a literal interpretation of Scripture, particularly prophecy. Um, this is sometimes called uh, the, uh, literal whenever possible or uh, sometimes called a, a consistently literal hermeneutic, and we'll talk a bit more about that later on. But the idea is, is uh, if Scripture says something and it can be taken literally, um, it should be rather than figuratively or symbolically. Not to say there is never symbolic or figurative, but if it can be taken literally, it probably should be. So that's what they call a consistently literal hermeneutic. Thirdly is this ongoing distinction between Israel and the church. And this is, and this is part of really classical dispensationalism, right? That God um, has two peoples, or at least two plans. Now, some of that language they've kind of gotten away from, but there's this idea that God has a people, the physical seed of Abraham, that is the, the people of Israel, and God has a plan for them. And then there's the people, there's the spiritual seed of Israel, which, or of Abraham, which is the church. And, these, and God has two essentially different programs, and the idea is, is that God has a plan, he's made promises to Israel, but God has kind of put a pause on that right now. And so God is now working with the, uh, his second people, or his other people, the, uh, the church, us. But there will come an end to the church age, right, the dispensation of grace. Um, this is the times of the Gentiles. That time will come to an end of fulfillment, right? And then in the millennium, God will return his attention back to his other people, the nation of Israel. And I hesitate to even use two people because I do want to be fair because there has been a movement away from saying there's two people, but they say there's like one people of God but two different plan so and i want to be fair um but fourthly so this ongoing distinction between israel and the church is the third one but fourthly uh is just a unique understanding of premillennial eschatology and so we'll talk more about that next week but dispensationalism is always premillennial there's different views of how you interpret the millennium um but dispensationalism is is its own unique version of uh of, of, of premillennialism that's the end time so let me talk a little bit about the history, where, where this comes from, and uh, what the uh, and how it became, how it spread, uh, and grew in popularity. So dispensationalism's founding is traced back to a man named, named John Nelson Darby. Um, he had his own Bible translation. Darby was part of the founding of the Plymouth Brethren Church, which um, you'll find Plymouth Brethren churches even around here as well. Uh, he was an Englishman. Uh, and sometime around between 1830 and 1840 is when this understanding of scripture called dispensationalism really came to exist as we know it. So, and this view grew in popularity really uh, out of the at the end of the 19th century, going into the 20th century. Um, so, this has been particularly um, popular among conservative evangelicals and fundamentalists. Um, it's not really typical of the Reformed camp, as that really has held closely to the Reformation. Uh, and so Reformed people tend to hold more to um, covenant theology. So there are people who would consider themselves Reformed and dispensational. John MacArthur would be um, a pretty common uh, example of that. But largely Pentecostals, many Baptists, Charismatics, uh, Calvary Chapels, of course Brethren Churches, 
Um, I'm sure you'll find people in Methodist churches and other places as well uh, who would hold to a form of, uh, pres- uh, not Presbyterianism, dispensationalism. Too many big words. I'm gonna, we're just going to start messing them up, and that's okay. right? So, but let's talk about, so this is relatively new as far as church history goes. I mean, it's a, a view that became popular and known around in the uh, early, mid-1800s. So what, what accounts for its really explosive spread? Um, so there's a couple things. Number one of them would be uh, the Schofield Reference Bible. Does anyone know what this is or have one? A Schofield Reference Bible. Okay, yeah, a few. Uh, in college, I was actually, I got one of these. I went to Liberty University, and it, it's a dis- dispensational school. And uh, this was a textbook, <laughs> actually. So, um, yeah, so Schofield Reference Bible is really kind of cool and kind of unique in this sense that um, there, it was really the first study Bible for like a 400-year gap. So, and what I mean by that is we, we're used to study Bibles now where you have the Bible up top and then you have a line and then you have commentary. Like, so you have the Bible and commentary and charts and notes in the same actual physical book rather than having a separate book that's a commentary. I mean, that wasn't always around. You had some of that uh, in, uh, in Calvin's day, the Geneva Study Bible. Um, but then there was like this just a couple hundred years where that really wasn't happening. So then in the early 20th century, Schofield uh, study Bible came out, a reference Bible came out, and it was hugely popular, okay, because it's just a great resource, right? Now they're, now they're all over the place. Um, but it, it, was, it actually popularized dispensationalism, so all the notes, you know, in it are promoting a dispensational view. So a lot of people grab the study Bible and, uh, and learn the Bible that way. Secondly, uh, and this is, this is a fascinating one for me, but um, at, the, at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, one of the things that uh, churches were really struggling with and just uh, was the idea of German theological liberalism was coming across the pond and really infecting pastors and churches, right? And, and, and this, this theological liberalism was really starting to say, like, you know, you can't take the Bible literally. There's, it's myths, right? It's, Jesus wasn't literally born of a virgin. He didn't literally turn water into wine. He certainly didn't raise from the dead. Rather, these are stories that... You know, that, that teach an important truth, and they teach you know, that kind of thing, right, where, you know, miracles are denied. And, you know, and Moses didn't write the Old Testament, and really no, no author who we recognize actually wrote it, that kind of stuff, really just undercutting the authority and the, the truthfulness of the Bible and turning it into just like a good moral teaching, right? Well, that was, you know, that was a, a, a view of theology that was getting then taught from professors in, in seminaries, and that's getting down into those men who are training for the pastorate, who are then going and taking it into their churches and kind of filtering down. And by the way, that is, seems to be a continuing problem. Uh, but it was a problem at this time, right? And so people are saying, hey, there's, where is the true faith, right? So there's a guy named Lyman Stewart, a California businessman, and he conceived this idea. He funded it and distributed it. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get some scholars, some conservative Christian scholars, to write a series of articles, and I'm going to send this out free of charge to pastors, to, to Sunday school leaders, to YMCA directors, I mean, to, to, and, we're, and it's going to be in this 12-volume set. So it ended up being 90 articles in a 12-volume set called The Fundamentals, The Fundamentals of the Faith, which, by the way, is where we get the idea of fundamentalism, right? So that's an interesting part of church history, right? So uh, as far as, as, far as you know, Christian fundamentalism. So, yeah, this idea of, like, what are the truths of Scripture? So the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, sacrificial, you know, of Jesus for our sins, all the fundamentals of what it means to be a true Christian. Dispensationalism was included in that, interestingly. 
And so as part of the fundamentals of the faith, it was, that's the way it looked at uh, the scriptures. So that was sent out and was largely influential, and so that's what influences fundamentalism, fundamentalist Christianity, which in turn has influenced evangelicalism, which is an offshoot of fundamentalism. So, um, so that's a couple of things. Secondly was the 20th, oh, sorry, thirdly, another thing that in, encouraged the, the spread of dispensationalism is uh, the 20th century had a whole host of wars. Um, so actually up until this time, one, the, the like default eschatology, the default view of pretty much everyone since the Puritans held something called post-millennialism, which we'll talk about next year, next year, next week. <laughs> um, and this was the idea, right? It was very optimistic, right? This is, I mean, think about it. This is the Industrial Revolution. Everything's happening. It seems like the world's getting better. Technology is exploding. You know, Amer- uh, the American experiment has gone well. And this idea that the Christian gospel is going to be so successful, it's going to spread all over the world until the majority of people become Christians, and it's going to affect culture. It's going to affect uh, nations. It's going to affect government. It's going to affect all these things. And then that's going to kind of bring in the millennium, right? Very optimistic. It was held by Jonathan Edwards and all these guys, right? Well, then the 20th century happened, and the Great War happened, and World War II happened, and we saw up front just how terrible things could get. Millions and millions of people killed under Nazism, under fascism, under communism, right? And so that optimism kind of went straight out the door, right? Um, And so uh, dispensationalism and its view of eschatology really resonated with a lot of people. Uh, Not only that, but at the end of World War II, uh, Israel was established as a nation, which seemed in many people's eyes to validate the claims of dispensationalism, that God still had a plan for the specific nation of Israel. So there's that, and then fourthly, I'll just say that there's just always been a general curiosity about the end times, right? There's like a couple things that you can preach on that will almost always draw a crowd, uh, case in point, right? And then the end times is, is one of them, right, Christians? And, uh, and some dis- dis- dispensational teachers are really active and, and look for signs of the end times. And, you know, if you, if you go, I used to go to, when Lifeway was actually a physical store, right? If you actually went to, like, the prophecy section, like, they were pretty much all from dispensational authors, and like a few otherwise, but they're very prolific in writing and so forth. Also, the Left Behind books. Has anyone ever read a Left Behind book? Yeah, almost, almost everybody. That's, that's essentially a dispensational eschatology um, in, in fictionalized form, of course. And I'll pray for you if you saw the movies, I'm sorry. Um, Nicholas Cage was in one of them, good gracious. Um, so uh, anyway, so that's general. And you could say other things as well, the onset of Bible colleges, you know, the onset of uh, prophecy conferences, all of this were really in the past 100 years, 150 years, has really exploded uh, and made this, uh, this view really popular. And in many circles, almost like the default view of Christians, um, even, though it has, even though it's relatively new in church history. So, so you know, I'd like to just take a minute to say, what, what are some things that we respect about dispensationalism? So even though, you know, obviously we're coming in a place of disagreement from this view, you know, I, I grew up and every church I've ever served, in, except for this one, has been dispensational. I went to a dispensational college and seminary. I was trained under that and just godly men and women really poured into me and taught me and trained me. So I have a lot of affection and I've worked alongside people um, who hold this view. So... Uh, so here's some things I respect about dispensationalism. Uh, this belief that all the Word of God is true and should fit together. That's a good thing, right? That the belief that, that all of God's Word is true and it should make sense and should fit together. We share that belief. The belief that God's, all of God's promises 
must be fulfilled. And that's something you kind of hear, right? That, you know, God's promises, he made promises, and they must be fulfilled. Because if God makes a promise and it's not fulfilled, he'd be a liar, right? So I I wholeheartedly say amen to that. A desire to have a consistent approach to interpreting God's word, which is also a very good thing, right? We don't want to just say, well, I'll interpret some verses according to this way and this way, you know, but say, no, we want to have a consistent hermeneutic that makes sense. It is a system. And so uh, I definitely say amen to that. And these, these next two, I think, are really things that I, that I appreciate um, especially. One is there's an anticipation and a watchfulness for the signs of the end times, right? So uh, it's something I just always appreciate, right, that, that, you know, Christ calls us to be looking, to be watching, right, and I've seen that among people who hold dispensationalism, that they do, want, they, even if it's reading the newspaper and watching the news and trying to say, hey, what's going on with the world right now? Is this leading to a sign of the end, right? And I think that's actually in obedience to what Christ calls us to do, right, you know, to, to be ready, to be watchful for the Christ comes at a time you do not know. We want to be ready for that. So if, if our eschatology, whatever it is, leads us to say, I'm just going to keep leaving my life whenever Jesus comes back, he comes back, and I'm fine with whatever. You're doing it wrong, no matter what your eschatology is, right? That is not how we're supposed to be. It's not how Christ wants us to live, you know. Um, and lastly, um, es- their eschatology really is tied to their evangelism. Okay, this idea that Christ is coming back, right, and, we, and, and that is not something that's just like, oh, it's a nice thing of study that Christians talk about, like that is tied to evangelism. So uh, lo- love it or hate it, but I used to drive down in Virginia, down from between Lynchburg and Roanoke and see, see um, uh, boards, what are those called? Thank you. My brain cannot use normal words right now. Billboards that said like, you know, Jesus is coming. Will you be left behind? That's a specifically dispensational view. Will you be left behind, right? That is saying, hey, we have an eschatology, right? And we believe that Jesus is going to come back at an unknown time and Christians are going to be taken up, are going to be raptured when Christ comes back invisibly. And if you are not a believer in Christ, you will be left behind and have to undergo tribulation and, and the rule of the Antichrist. But that, it's not just this nice little eschatology like it says hey we want you to believe in christ and so i I appreciate that so if at any point your belief about the end times is divorced from your preaching of the gospel or your 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 desire to see people come to christ if those things don't match up once again i think we're we're doing it wrong we always should do evangelism with a view that it's not only your death that should be the thing on your mind but that christ is coming back so so anyway, those things some things I definitely respect, and I could I could say more things as well, but I'll say those things. So, uh, so real quickly, but you know, I, we do find that you know we don't agree with the dispensational view. I think it has some areas of concern and critique. So I'm actually going to put those under those two headings, right? Concerns, and and I'll say these these are things that I don't think are necessarily um, you know wrong with the system itself, but but I, I notice they sometimes are trends with people who hold this, things that, you know, just growing up in dispensational churches and uh, going to seminary and so forth, these are just things that I tended to see. So these are potential abuses. No, uh, one is that I have seen dispensationalism at times become a litmus test for faith and a litmus test for if you take God's word seriously. Um, and a part of that comes from, and remember the original view was people flocked to this view because it was that or you were liberal. <laughs> you're giving it a German liberalism. You're not taking Scripture seriously. You're seeing it as symbolic. You know, we take God's word seriously. We take it literally. You know, um, and so if there's ever a view that like 
doesn't quite line up with that. It was, well, you're on your fast track to being liberal. You're not taking God's word seriously, you know, which I've experienced, and I didn't, and that's not true. Secondly, and this could be true almost of anything, really, but I have seen it given to sensationalism at times. I've seen some high-profile leaders or authors who really, it seems like when, when there's something in the news, it's always given uh, end-time significance, right? Multiple times, whenever there was, when I was in seminary, something new happened with, uh, with the war in Iraq and with things that were going on with ISIS and so forth. Uh, it was sometimes given end-time significance, but it's been that way for decades. You know, in the 1970s, you know, uh, the red horse represented communism. I, have, I used to have a book on my shelf uh, where it said, you know, Saddam Hussein was rebuilding Babylon. Is he the Antichrist? And I mean, that book's no longer in print because Saddam Hussein died, right? So, uh, but you know, there was this idea that sometimes, and by the way, they're not the first or last to do this um, because the reformers thought the Pope was the Antichrist. <laughs> so we, it's not a bad thing to be specific. But I have seen that a lot of times it gets really specific, and, and when these predictions get errant, when they're, they're, they're proven to be not true, they're just kind of forgotten about when we keep moving on. So um, another one is this, and this one I'll be careful about, but I th- there's an allegiance to the secular nation of Israel that I think goes beyond just kind of a political allegiance to Israel, right? So I'll, I'll go be upfront. Like, I'm politically, I'm conservative. You know, um, I, I, I think that when I look at politics and I think of Israel, they are a democratic nation and a part of the world where there's not a lot of democratic nations. And so as an ally of the U.S., I, I support them. But I think sometimes uh, people within dispensationalism, not always, but I've seen where there's like this devotion to the nation of Israel as, this, as the people of God or another people of God. or this, It goes beyond more than just the political where you, you see, you know, pastors who have you know, the flag of Israel in their church when... I mean, Israel is, they need the gospel as much as the Palestinians, as much as the Syrians and the people in Jordan and everything else. Like, Israel is not a Christian nation. It's not even really largely an Orthodox Jewish nation. Um, it's, there's a lot of atheists in Israel as well. So as, just as a, as a nation, I've seen sometimes an allegiance to the secular nation of Israel that I think goes into dangerous territory. Um, and this is the last one, an implication that is just kind of is a concern for me. And this is, once again, from kind of personal experience. I think sometimes this view that Jesus is going to come back at any moment and secretly rapture the church and, and remove us from the world stage before tribulation comes, I, I think that doesn't really prepare God's people for suffering and tribulation the way the New Testament consistently does. You read letter after letter after letter, there is this idea of like Christ suffered and you will as well, and there's in being prepared for suffering. I think the book of Revelation is really trying to do that as well. Every generation should be prepared, but I have seen an attitude at times, people saying, well, I'm not going to be here for it, you know, and just going to escape it altogether, and you'll see bumper stickers, you know, in case of, hopefully nobody in this room has it, and I'll feel bad if I say it, but in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. You know, that kind of mentality, like, I won't be here, you know, and I think that that's not helpful to others. It's not responsible, I think, and we should be prepared, you know, for, for being here through suffering, through tribulation. So I will say those are just some concerns. That's not for everybody, but those are some trends I've noticed. Um, I will, and then I'll mention just real quick some, some three critiques, some things that I think actually are problems with the system itself. Um, one is actually the literal hermeneutic, and it's not because I don't take scripture literally. Of course, we, we just spent a whole time talking about how we interpret scripture, right? Um, but, I, but I, in dispensationalism, literal really means physical, 
meaning like if a script if a prophecy is not fulfilled physically in in a worldly earthly sense then it's not actually being literal and so um if there's a prophecy a, a classic an example would be like I can't remember the reference, but, you know, taking swords and spears and, 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 and beating them into plowshares and pruning hooks. Does that sound familiar? Right? This idea of world peace and nations, and world, nations laying down their weapons. Well, you can only take that so far, right, because we don't use swords and spears anymore. Neither do we use, to my knowledge of farming, plowshares or pruning hooks, at least in the same way, right? So, like there's, so we understand that their prophecy has an element of figurativeness or, or it's, it's fulfilled in Christ and these are Old Testament pictures used to picture far future realities or at least when they were written so I think the, liter- the literal hermeneutic actually fails to be consistently literal and it comes up a couple times in some of their pro- in the way they interpret prophecy um, and, and it can lead to honestly things that just seem kind of weird um, so like I you know, I believe you know, there's prophecies about you know the, the mountain of the Lord being the highest mountain. I think that's really talking about you know God being glorified among the nations rather than Mount Zion actually physically being the tallest mountain in the world. It can lead to, to splitting hair, splitting air, excuse me, splitting hairs, where you know the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven those are used kind of synonymously in the Gospels. Matthew prefers kingdom of heaven, I believe, over the kingdom of God. Um, but sometimes there was early in dispensationalism, well, it's two different phrases. It must mean two different things, two different kinds of kingdoms, the heavenly kingdom and the millennial kingdom. That's not, I don't believe, what it's, what it's talking about. So I actually think the, the way of interpreting Scripture leads to errant interpretation. Secondly is uh, the two plans or two people of God, this ongoing, perhaps eternal, uh, distinction between Israel and the church. Um, I think the consistent message of the New Testament is there's one unified people of God. Believers in Christ of all nations, tribes, and tongues. God has one plan of salvation and destiny inheritance for them all. So it is those who have faith, Paul talks about in Galatians, those who are of faith like Abraham, who are sons of Abraham who inherit the promises. And so, um, and so dispensationalism holds that God has a separate plan for believing Jews, so it is believing Jews, whom he'll reconstitute uh, as a nation, and just personally, I, I don't see it. I feel like consistently we see fulfillment in Christ, and we see fulfillment in the church, uh, and we see one people of God, not not a division. Um, and then lastly, uh, there's a unique understanding of the second coming in the millennium. It, it is a novel form of premillennialism, and we'll talk kind of more about this next week, so I don't want to say too much about it. Um, but you know, we talked earlier about how we want to interpret the Old Testament in light of the New. So when we go back at the Old Testament, we want to read it from the point of view of the New Testament authors. Because um, you gave some examples of, you know, out of Egypt I called my son. You probably wouldn't read that and say, oh, obviously this is talking about the Messiah. Right? But Matthew says, no, that is talking about the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of that. So we read the Old Testament in light of the New. At times, dispensation kind of turns that on its head. And interprets the New Testament in light of the Old. So if there's an example, so there's an idea that God made promises um, that have not been fulfilled literally, meaning physically. So a temple being rebuilt, or or an Israel inheriting the land, and, and it's it's spoken of in, in really high language. If we don't f- believe that has been interpreted physically or literally, that it's still yet to be fulfilled, rather than has been fulfilled in Christ, it's assumed that it has not yet been fulfilled, and so it has to be fulfilled somewhere. And then Revelation 20 is read in light of that, and that gets 
put in there. So I, I think there's this idea of the temple being rebuilt, sacrifices being offered, the priests being restored, land being restored. All of these are still on the table for dispensationalism rather than having been fulfilled in Christ. And so I think it actually takes a step back in redemption history. So we can talk more about the second coming in the millennium. We'll talk about all different views, and there's, there's pros and there's cons to all of them, honestly. But we'll talk a bit more about that uh, next week. So that's just a quick thing about another, another view, dispensationalism. Uh, I, I hope I was fair. I try to be fair, and uh, hopefully it was informative with as well. Good stuff. Thank you, Pastor Matt. Um, <clears throat> we are obviously laying out our biblical convictions that covenant theology is, is the, um, the, the best, most biblically faithful way to understand the scriptures, but we, we love and we are grateful for um, our brothers and sisters in Christ that, that hold the different convictions and we'll be worshiping right alongside of many, many dispensational believers in, in heaven. And, and yet, we want to be clear about our convictions and about some of our concerns and, and as Pastor Matt said, critiques. Um, question five there in your notes, and then we'll, um, we'll wrap up probably and, and, and pause for some questions. We talked about the Old Covenant, right, the covenant with, with Abraham um, that, that broadens out into the covenant with Israel through Moses and, and, and the covenant with David. How is the Old Covenant fulfilled in Christ? How, how does Christ in the New Covenant fulfill um, the Old Covenant in Christ and, by extension, in the church? Remember when I talked about the covenant with um, Abraham, Genesis uh, 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, three chapters articulating God's covenant with Abraham. We, we can look at it in three, three sections, right? His promise for the people, his promise for the land, and his promise for blessing. So blessing, how does God's blessing to Abraham extend to all the nations of the earth? The, this one's going to be very short, right? How is God's blessing that he made to Abraham extend to all the nations through faith in Christ? Okay, that, that we now receive the blessings that God promised to Abraham, not just to Jews, but to every nation of the earth that have come through the son of Abraham, through the seed of Abraham, the true Israel, Jesus. Now, through Christ, God's blessing goes to every nation of the earth, every, every people group. Forgiveness, relationship with God, eternal life comes through faith in Christ. A more difficult, more complicated issue is the people. God's blessing to, excuse me, God's promise to to a multiply Abraham's uh, descendants to be more numerous than the, the sand of the sea and the, and the stars of the sky. Who are the people of God? And that, as, as Pastor Matt said, that's one of the key areas of dispute and disagreement between uh, covenant believers and dispensational believers. Um, and we would hold that the New Testament outlines the reality that a true child of Abraham, a true Israelite, a true Jew, is one who is right with God through faith in Christ. That That... Physical lineage, outward obedience to the law, does not make you a child of Abraham. Romans 2.28, you see there in your notes. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Verse 29, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. Right? And, and so to, to, be, to be a son of Abraham means that your heart is circumcised, not your flesh. And so just as we find salvation in Christ by looking back to the Messiah, the, the the, the Israelites of the Old Testament found salvation, not through the law, not through circumcision, not through their physical lineage, but by looking ahead. Believers of the Old Covenant found salvation by looking ahead to the coming Messiah. So everyone who's in heaven is going to be there because they looked to Jesus. Either they looked ahead to Jesus or they looked back to Jesus. Romans 3.28 in your notes. One who is, we hold that one who is justified by faith... We hold that 
one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law? Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Hebrews 11 says all of these, talking there about the Old Testament, right, the hall of faith we call it in Hebrews 11, all of these Old Testament saints, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. The Old Testament believers did did not receive salvation, eternal life, did not ultimately receive what was promised apart from us, apart from followers of Christ. They are not made perfect outside of something different than than we are as Christians. And so a Christian is, is, excuse me, a Jew is, is, is a child of God inwardly, not outwardly, through faith in Christ, not through ethnicity. And Christians, we are children of Abraham. The, the New Testament says that we are children of Abraham. We are part of the covenant through faith in Christ. You and I now are called the offspring of Abraham. That Israel and the church, Jew and Gentile, as Pastor Matt said, are one unified body, one chosen people of God through Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, a beautiful passage, saying to us, we are Gentiles, most of us, I assume, um, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Verse 12 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Right? Gentiles had no hope. We were, we, were, we were alienated from the covenant of Israel. But verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. For generations, this dividing wall between, between Israel and the nations, that has been broken down by abolishing, excuse me, he himself is our peace, has made us both one, broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Abolish the law and the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. And so we hold firmly that it is an issue central to the gospel that there is one people of God, Jew and Gentile. Wayne Grudem says it this way in his systematic theology. The church includes both Old Testament believers and the New Testament believers in one church or one body of Christ. Many New Testament verses, particularly in Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, understand that the church understand the church as the new Israel or the new people of God. The covenant that God predicted through Jeremiah, as, in, as we interpreted earlier in, in Hebrews 8, is the covenant of which believers in the church are now members. The church is the continuation of God's plan expressed throughout the Old Testament to call a people to himself. One people. And so we asked the question, and Matt alluded to this earlier. Matt, I'm glad you brought it up before I did. Um, which is, well, what are we today to make of modern-day Israel? Are, are the modern-day Israelis the chosen people of God, right? There was a nation established in 1948. Many, many people who traced their heritage back to ethnic Israel um, came to be established in, in modern-day Israel. They are, as Matt said, an ally of America because of our, our, our shared democratic politics. But we do not believe that they represent the covenant people of God. And, and I say this lovingly, but I say it strongly, that the New Testament has no room for any understanding of God's covenant people outside of those who have faith in Christ. And yet, and yet I will also say this, that does not mean that ethnic Israel is meaningless, does not mean that, that those who trace their ethnic heritage 
to Abraham do not still, I would say, have a special place in God's heart. I know that might sound a little overly, overly uh, romantic or whatever, but I, I believe that there is a purpose for ethnic Israel in God's plan of redemption. Um, again, Wayne Grudem, talking about Romans chapter 11. Many of you are familiar with that passage. Go back and check it out. He says that, that God still uh, views the, the very Jews who have rejected the gospel of Christ in some sense as beloved. Okay, uh, Romans 11.28 says that as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, talking about ethnic Jews, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Right? And so many would read Romans chapter 11 as predicting a future large-scale conversion of the Jewish people. And, and within a system of covenant theology, that is still very much a possibility. Many theologians hold that. But, but the conversion is only going to result in the Jewish people becoming part of the one true church of God. They will be, as, as Romans 11 says, grafted back into their own olive tree. Not saved because they are ethnic Israel, but saved because they are believers in Jesus. And so who are the people of God? One unified people, Jew and Gentile, children of Abraham who have faith in Christ. Um, covenant theology is what we could call remnant theology. And, 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 and many um, dispensationalist brothers and sisters in Christ um, have a critique of covenant theology is that it's replacement theology. You're just replacing Israel with the church. Um, we do not believe that to be true. If you look at that diagram um, there in your notes, and, and Pastor Matt, I tried to tweak this a little bit to make it, to make it more uh, coherent. Um, we do not believe that Israel is replaced by the church, but that Israel is fulfilled in the true Israel, which is Jesus. And, and so this is kind of similar in form to some of those diagrams we looked at earlier, right? The covenant initially began with Abraham. It was extended out to Isaac, then Jacob, then the 12 sons, Moses and the Exodus. They come into the promised land. The height of, of, the, of the covenant people of God, you could say, was under the reign of David and Solomon, right? When the kingdom was at its biggest in terms of numerically, militarily, the land, the wealth, everything, right? And then what happened? There was a schism, north and south split. Eventually, the northern tribes get hauled off into exile. Eventually, the southern tribes get hauled off into exile. And what you see happening is there's a a dwindling back down, right? The faithful remnant of Israel begins to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And the people of God return to Jerusalem after the the southern exile. But but it's it's never again the same. And the idea of remnant theology is that the faithful remnant of Israel is essentially, spiritually speaking, dwindled down until there's only one faithful member of Israel. What one true Israelite, Jesus Christ the Messiah. And through faith in Him, the covenant then extends out expansively to all the nations of the earth, all who are in Christ, Jew and Gentile. Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, and then jumping into verse 27 says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is so crucial to understand this. And, and even if the diagram is not helpful, please understand the principle. Okay, The church does not replace Israel. Israel is fulfilled in Christ, the new Adam, the, 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 the son of, of Abraham, the, the better David. Thirdly, real quickly, um, and, then, and then we'll pause for questions. Um, how does the, the land fulfilled in the new covenant? What is the fulfillment of the promised land? Again, we want to say that the climax, the, the focal point of all of, of history in the Old Testament is Christ. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham. He is the offspring, as Galatians says, the offspring of Abraham who fulfills the covenant. And just as the innumerable offspring of Abraham, just as all of the blessings that were to, to go out to the nation, as God said to Abraham, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed, just as that is fulfilled in Christ, we hold to be true that the, the promised land is fulfilled in Christ through the work of Christ. And, 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 and we would hold that the New Testament does not give us an expectation that God's people will one day settle in a physical land uh, in, a, in a section of the Middle East that was what was once the homeland of, of the sons and daughters of Abraham, of Israel. Rather, our hope for the promised land is set on what the New Testament says is the new Jerusalem. Our hope for the promised land is fulfilled and even expanded in the new Jerusalem, the eternal heavens and the earth. So instead of, of God's people just getting a, 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 a few hundred acres in the Middle East, we now get all of the new heavens, all of the new earth, all of the new Jerusalem that Revelation 20 says will come down out of heaven. And so we, we do not look ahead to a physical promised land. It doesn't mean that God's promises are not fulfilled. They are fulfilled. In fact, they're blown away beyond any and all expectation. Well, not a physical promised land, but a heavenly promised land. What Hebrews calls a better homeland, a heavenly one. Hebrews 11, you have in your notes there, says, Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants. Talking about Abraham. Little little compliment there. He was as good as dead. As many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. Yes, amen, the people of God seek a homeland. Verse 15, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. And again, the New Testament is helping us interpret the Old Testament. They desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What is that city? It is not Jerusalem in the Middle East. It is the new Jerusalem that Revelation talks about. See, God's covenant is fulfilled through a far better reality in Christ. So I want to ask uh, Pastor Matt to come up. Uh, section 6, uh, I, want to ju- I want to just let you know that I told Matt, didn't I tell you? I said, we're probably not going to have time for Section 6, but I'll put it in the notes so you can read it later. A little more practical guidance for how do we read and interpret the Old Testament, kind of walking you through that fulfillment approach. Um, if these notes don't make any sense, go back and check out my blog from a few weeks ago called The Old Testament is About Jesus, helping you practically read the Old Testament, apply the Old Testament from a covenant theology perspective. So look, we want to pause now. Um, I, I was hoping we'd have more time, but we can go over if we need to. i got nowhere to go. Um, I'm getting my COVID shot at 9.35 tomorrow morning. Other than that, I can be here all night. Um, but um, so, so what questions do you have? What can we help clarify? I'm going to pull my stool up a little bit. What, what, can, what can we help clarify um, about any or all of the sections? Um, again, keep in mind, we might occasionally tell you, come back next week. We're going to talk about that next week. But... Um, Actually, you know what? We need, I think we're going we're gonna to use the mic so that um, the folks watching at home can hear you. So if you're afraid of the mic, I'm sorry. Ask the Lord for courage. Dave. I think it would be helpful. Could you explain then what an Old Testament true believer, what the object of their faith was if they did not understand regarding Christ? Yeah, I, I think they... I think they they had faith in, in Yahweh, 
who would fulfill the promise of the Messiah, fulfill the promise to Abraham, who would one day send the Davidic king to redeem them. I think their understanding was, was clouded, was shadowed. They certainly didn't understand that it was a man by the name of Jesus born in the city of Nazareth. But I, but I think that they, they looked ahead to a messianic hope, to the expectation that God would one day redeem his people. Yeah. I mean, Paul talks about this a bit in Romans when he says, you know, uh, Abraham believed and God credited it to him as righteousness. And so, like we talked about progressive revelation earlier on, they didn't, they didn't have the full revelation. They, you know, probably were aware of the, 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 the seed who will crush the serpent's head, you know, and, and, and so forth. But, um, yeah, they look ahead according to the revelations they had. So for, the for key Peter there is faith then. What's that? The key then is faith, right. even though yeah. there Abraham believed God was credited to him as righteousness. Yeah. And you went different. to the temple and you made sacrifices to atone for your sin in faith. That, that, that God was going to forgive you. Did, did they understand that one day a man would die on a cross and be the fulfillment of those atonement sacrifices? No, I don't believe so. But I think that their faith was, was in the Lord and, and in atonement. First uh, Peter 1 10 says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or what time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news. So there's this sense that even the prophets, right, they searched, they inquired, they, the Spirit of Christ was at work in, in them, even as they predicted the suffering and glory of, glory of Christ, that they didn't fully understand in their human mind, right, but they were looking ahead to that Messiah. Great question. Dave, if you want to be our mic guy, since you went first, who, who else who wants to ask a question, please use the mic. So those in the live stream, Tim Stello, thank you, brother. Um, All right, so um, so I guess I have a, a need some clarity as far as the difference between dispensationalism and uh, covenant theology. Specifically, so dispensationalism, you have time periods called dispensations. I, I'm having a hard time seeing the difference between that and mm-hmm. the covenants, which you know, have a start and beginning, a time period as well. Good. Yeah. So there, there is some overlap, right? Because the time, and so the, the seven dispensations were popularized by Schofield. Some people have as many as 20-something dispensations. Some people have only, only a few. So uh, I just gave you kind of the number that's most common. My understanding, and I probably could use some, some more study on this, was uh, that the, uh, the God, in each dispensation, God has a certain set of expectations, and he deals with people differently um, during that time period, so like during the time, some of that is, is obvious, right? He, he dealt with people differently during different time periods, different um, uh, responsibilities and expectations for them. Uh, they always fail, but that gives birth to a new dispensation, leads to a new dispensation. Um, yeah, so uh, as far as how they all link together, the idea is, is that that's just the way that they group it together. The main issue I have is not so much the fact that there's different time periods, because a lot of those time periods look similar <laughs> to covenant theology. So that, that's just a feature of it, how they organize like the chapters. Okay, the, the more important thing to obviously to point out is is their view of Israel and the Church and the hermeneutics. That's the kind of area I'd, I'd want to more focus on. So, I, I I think I would say it this way: is that in while yes, there's either different dispensations or different covenants, and you can sort of say, well, aren't those just different words to describe the same thing? I would say it this way, you know, dispensationalism, from my perspective, seems to, seems to emphasize disunity between those covenants or dispensations. Yeah. 
Covenant theology would, would tend to emphasize unity, that there's a progression, that the covenants are connected, they're building, they're moving toward the new covenant in Christ. And, and, so, and so each covenant is related to the next and, and is building, is growing, is ultimately finding fulfillment in, in the new covenant. It's also important to recognize, and, and I want to say this, is that of, of course there's going to be similarity. We all love Jesus. We all believe in the Bible. You know, we're talking about very deep, difficult, complicated things. Um, the other thing is that, uh, and I, I, think, I think we can say this, is that you know, we've kind of presented like this or this, A or B, either or. But there really is in some sense a spectrum. Okay, So sort of the, the, the traditional, classical form of, of dispensationalism has, has progressed. There's now people who would call themselves progressive dispensationalists. They would have a softer understanding, right, as Matt indicated earlier. Not that there's two completely separate people of God that come to heaven under different circumstances, but different plans, right? So there are, you know, uh, progressive dispensationalists in the same way that there's covenant theology and there, there's, uh, um, which I, I find a lot of, of commonality with, what's called progressive covenantalism, which would be a, l- a little bit closer to, to the middle, so to speak, that would give a little more um, weight to to uh, ethnic Israel, or, or that would be a little bit softer in terms of, of some of the differences and things like that. So, on some sense, there's a spectrum. There's, there's clearly two camps, right? But within each camp, there are those that are more more conservative, more traditional, more progressive in terms of their of their understanding. So, um, anything else you want to say about that? No, that's good. That's good. Awesome. Um, who, who else? Other questions? What can we clarify? Tim, can you run that back there for me? Thank you, brother. I'm not exactly sure how to phrase this question, but uh, how do you differentiate or how does covenant theology align with five-point Calvinism? Mm. Um, I mean, they're not the same thing, but they swim in the same pool, I guess. Um, so they, they both, I think, came to be articulated out of the Reformation, you know, as the Protestant Church was was clarifying things out of um, out of the Catholic Church, and so um, yeah, I think re- um, Reformed theology. You know, you have the Canons of Dort that kind of said, like, "Hey, here's what we believe contra the Arminians. Here's what we the five points we believe summarized." You know, they, call, they didn't call it Calvinism, but Reformed theology as as, as it uh, as it pertains to salvation. Uh, covenant theology was just actually. It's kind of been around, as you said, kind of earlier, like forever. It was just kind of clearly articulated during the Reformation. And so documents like the Westminster Confession of Faith and the London Baptist Confession, I think the Savoy Declaration and some others, are really just kind of just thinking about in terms of covenant, just thinking about how these things kind of worked out. So they are definitely like related. Those were, those were two issues that were clearly articulated during the same like 100-year period. Um, and so yeah, there was just a sense where that's what Protestants believed during that time period. Um, but as, you know, as, as the church history moved on, you had people who moved into you know, a more Arminian camp and, you, and people who remained in a more Reformed camp and then dispensationalism tended to develop to more along Arminian lines, I would say. But there are people, once again, there's people who, who kind of hold to both. I mean, John MacArthur, I said, is an example of somebody who holds to a form of dispensationalism um, as, as a Calvinist as well. So, Yeah, I, I think... So Matt, Matt's the expert on dispensationalism. I, I was trained and, and grew up in a, in a covenant the, the, theology perspective. Um, I, there does seem to be, at least in, 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 in dispensationalism, as Matt articulated historically, does seem to be risen out of and popularized in essentially modern-day America. Um, 
most dispensationalists would, would tend to be Arminian. Most uh, those that hold the covenant theology would tend to be Reformed. Um, and here's what I would say about the connection between, between Reformed theology and between, um, between covenant theology would be this. Reformed theology, Calvinism, tends to, to, to emphasize at, at the very least three things. One would be the, the sufficiency and the authority of the Bible. Second would be the, the doctrines of grace, right? The idea that, that God's grace is, is elevated. And the third would be, would be the sovereignty of God, that God has a plan and a purpose for all things. And so when you look at the approach to covenant theology that I think takes seriously the authority of Scripture, the unity of, of Scripture, I think central to the idea of covenant theology is grace, is the idea of what we, we call that, that big picture covenant of grace that's linking all of the covenants together, leading to fulfillment in Christ. And so there's a similar emphasis on grace. And I think a similar emphasis on the sovereignty of God. And so if you look at Calvinism as emphasizing my personal election, my personal salvation, God chose me before, um, before I chose him, I think you see the same thing in covenant theology, that God has sovereignly been working through every, through every uh, uh, um, you know, covenant of history, sovereignly uh, guiding and leading to fulfillment and to climax in Christ. And so I think the authority of Scripture, the emphasis on grace, and the elevation of the sovereignty of God, I, I, I think is, is, in my mind, what, what tends to sort of bring them together in a way that, that, that they work together. But question or follow-up? You know, I, I hear it bandied about a lot, like I'm a three-point Calvinist or a four-point Calvinist and, and yeah. that kind of thing. Um, I, I just don't, I, I have a real hard time with the five-point Calvinist understanding how, uh, what should I say, evangel, um, evangelism can even fit in the picture. Mm. Yeah. yeah. You know, so I don't know how you consider yourself like a three-point Calvinist. I'm not sure what points they would yeah. be. But. No, that's a great question. We, we unfortunately didn't really have, have it on the agenda or have a lot of time tonight to go into the sovereignty of God and issues you know, uh, um, that Calvin spoke about, what we call Calvinism. We do, at, at Living Hope, believe that, that um, God is sovereign, that man is responsible. We do believe that, that our choice of God is in response to his choice of us. We believe that, that, that sin so blinds us, so hardens our heart, that, that no man or woman could ever choose Jesus unless you first received the touch of the Holy Spirit, received the gift of faith, and, and been able to respond. Um, and so, yeah, but we'd love to talk more about the doctrine of election and, and about how that's articulated in the New Testament. Um, I think it, it's related to what we're talking about tonight, covenant theology, but, but, but also different. So, okay. Yeah. That's, that's just my confusion, the difference between Calvinism and, and covenant theology. That's yeah. all it is. Yeah, I, I, um, Calvin, as best as I can tell, would have articulated, did articulate covenant theology in his institutes. I believe so, yeah. um, Often when we talk about Calvinism, um, we're talking specifically about the doctrine of election. Calvin wrote about a ton about the Holy Spirit, about the church, about Scripture, about the Christian life, all, all sorts of things. But, but um, yeah. Good. Thank you. Any, anybody else want the mic next? Can you run that up here to Patrick? Thank you guys so much. Um, what you got, man? Okay, so I hope this makes sense because the question itself isn't even clear in my if mind. If it doesn't make sense, I'll have Matt answer first. <laughs> um, so regarding uh, covenant theology and kind of the whole definition, it's a covenant, a legal relationship agreement. I feel like, you know, we went through... Uh, all the different covenants that God established with his people. I feel like the Bible tells us time and time again that people failed, mm. but God kept his side of the bargain mm -hmm. um, for sure. Uh, so I just 
I'm not sure how we reconcile that with the covenant we're in now. You know, we're going to fail again. I feel like we fail all the time. So, uh, you know, what's that say about God and his, I know God will keep his promises. So, yeah. you know. So, um, when we're talking, you know, whenever different theologies use theological language to describe what's going on. We use the word Trinity. It's an invented word that we describe what the Bible teaches. There's uh, three words we talked about. You talked about all of them, or at least two out of three tonight. One is the covenant of redemption, that, that God made an agreement amongst himself that he would save a people for his own possession. That's a covenant within God's, you know, just in the Godhead. Um, and in the garden, we, ha- we see what theologians call a covenant of works. That's the idea. Do this and live. The idea was that not that Adam or mankind would live forever, right? But that, you know, if you are fruitful and you multiply, you subdue the earth and have dominion over it, you, you know, you fulfill the moral law in that regard, um, then you will have access to the tree of life and you will live forever, right? But it had to be earned. It's called a covenant of works, right? Fulfill the obligations and you get the covenant blessings. Fail and you inherit the covenant curses, right? That's called, they describe that as a covenant of works, okay? Um, whenever there's a covenant of works, we fail. <laughs> we, 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 because of sin, we are incapable of keeping it. Okay, Adam never achieved righteousness. I actually preached a little bit on this a couple weeks ago. That's why we, we, that's why we use the phrase the covenant of grace, which is what we see in the new covenant, where Jesus does the work that we couldn't do. He fulfills all the obligations um, so that we get to inherit the blessings. And so, yeah, you do see, you know, you know, Israel constantly failed. David failed, right? And God still, because he's, he's getting all the way, he has all these different covenants. They're looking forward to the new covenant, that, co- that gracious covenant that Jesus will do all the work. He will fulfill on our behalf. So, yeah, God is making covenants and promises, making agreements that are all working their way towards that gracious covenant where Jesus fulfills all the work that we never could. So I think that's, so there's kind of three categories that theologians kind of use. The covenant of redemption, you know, the, a covenant of works, and a covenant of grace. And so and there's different views within that, but maybe that helps a little bit. The, yeah, the other, the other thing I would add, so you're, you're touching on an area that I, I decided not, not to tap into, but real, real quickly, there's a lot of discussion and confusion and, and debate about is the covenant with Abraham conditional or is it unconditional? You read some sections of the Abrahamic covenant, as it, as it then expands out to the covenant with Israel through Moses. And some passages seem to indicate that God is going to do this. He's going to redeem his people. He will be faithful to his promises no matter what. And other places where the covenant seems conditional. In other words, you must fulfill these conditions. You must remain faithful. You must abide in the land. You must fulfill the law. And then, and then I will redeem you. And so there's, okay, is God's covenant with Israel conditional or unconditional? Right, because the people are never going to hold up their end of the bargain. But if it, they don't end of the hold up their end of the bargain, it's pretty clear that they will they will face curses. But yet in other places, God says that his his covenant will be unconditional. And we come to Jesus, where God's people fail. They did not meet the conditions of the covenant, and yet through Christ, the one true Israel who lived for thirty plus years fulfilling the covenant, walking in faithfulness, the one true Israel who did fulfill the covenant. And now God is faithful to fulfill that conditional, unconditional covenant promise to his people that now we can receive grace because even though Israel, you know, never f- fulfilled the conditions and we never can, Jesus did. And, and so we find ourselves back at, at Christ and, 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 his, um, and his perfect life. So, yeah.
Great question. Anybody, anybody else? It's, it's a, a, already a couple minutes after 7. If you have kids and you need to grab the kids or you need to go, great. I would love to, to uh, answer at least a couple more questions. Patrick, can you run that to the back row for me? Um, <clears throat> this is just kind of a fun question. Uh, <laughs> something <laughs> I, um, when, you, when you speak of the, the New Jerusalem, um, something I've been reading and discovering, and this just this spontaneous question that came to mind. Uh, Galatians 4 and Hebrews 12 talk about you know the New Jerusalem being right now and mm-hmm. ongoing. Um, when I was a dispensationalist, you know, in Revelation, you have an exact dimension of the of the New Jerusalem, and it's like the size of the United States is a perfect cube. Mm-hmm. Can that be interpreted as kind of being <clears throat> just figurative as this place is so great, like we don't know, like, is, is that a literal, like, dimension, or is it kind of... <laughs> I even look at these there. Weird question, I know. But no, we'll talk a little bit about that next next week. So I, I think um, uh, I would I would actually say something. I would have phrased a little bit differently when you were talking about the uh, the New Jerusalem. I think that all these the land promises are fulfilled, and you said this, but uh, the new heavens, the new earth. Right. I think we see that in Second Peter. You know, we await a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness truly dwells. Um, so I, I I think that the land promises that Israel looks to. Um, is actually, and the church, is all looking for, you know, we will inherit the earth. There will be a day when Second uh, Peter talks about this, the day of the Lord where the earth is purified and the only people who will dwell in new earth are God's people who will inherit it and reign over it and dwell over it forever. So I think there is a physical end to God, you know, for God on a physical, universe, a physical world, the new heavens, the new earth we will inhabit. And I think sometimes those, um, the language that's used is, is kind of just describe perfection. Right mm-hmm. to describe the perfect, you know. So, for example, like you know, the, we talk about you know, a gate is made out of a single pearl. You know, we, I think it's just really describing the beauty. Are there really streets of gold, or is that just to demonstrate? You know, maybe there is, but maybe has to show like how valuable it is. Like gold is something we don't make streets out of, right? You know, we we don't make pavement out of it. So I think it's to demonstrate how perfect and beautiful, with the imagery that's familiar to us now, the imagery that we hold as valuable and big and majestic that we understand now. He's, he's using that to picture what we can only glimpse at in the future, which I do th- think is, is physical as well. Yeah, we talked about interpreting Scripture according to genres. The apocalyptic literature is a very specific genre in Scripture that we find in, you know, in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Revelation and Matthew 24. And I think within the apocalyptic genre, yeah, they're, they're using language and imagery that, that people understand. And so they're using uh, you know, discussions of animals and, and dimensions and, and, and mm-hmm. various um, you know, precious metals and, and things like that, that, that I think many of, of those things are going to be interpreted, are going to be really fulfilled, literally, or excuse me, re- really fulfilled symbolically, figuratively, right? I mean, how do you describe to fallen human beings what eternity is going to be like? You have to find a way to put it into language that people will understand. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think dispensationalists, their concern is, well, you're, you're saying that the Bible is not going to be literally fulfilled. And we're saying, well, we're not only reading the Bible literally, we're, we're, we're reading it literarily. In other words, as a piece of literature, right? And, and so many of the, the imagery in, in, in these apocalyptic prophecies that, that, that are actually going to become true, and these images will symbolically, figuratively be, be true in heaven. And what mm-hmm. is heaven going to look like? 
My brain probably can't figure it out right now. But come back next week. We'll talk more about, about the new heavens and the new earth. You know, one, one thing I thought was interesting is like all the symbolic languages. That we, we do this too. So, for example, like if I talked about an elephant and a donkey politically, do you know what I'm talking about? If I said like if I was to describe the past election cycle and I say the donkey overcame the elephant, right? Like you would understand you know, the Democratic Party won the election over a Republican Party. Like, so like it's using language and symbols that like make sense to us. You know, send that 2,000 years from now and see if people fully understand the donkey and the elephant. What in the world? You know, like, so I think, some, there, so I think I'm using this as an example to say sometimes these images, it's like, what in the world does that make? But it would have made sense at the time it was written, I think. And I think we can still draw draw from it and understand what's going on. And there doesn't have to be a literal battle between a donkey and an elephant to see who wins, right? So, um. Good. How about, how about one more question? Anybody else? Tim's going to ask a second one if nobody else, nobody else has a question. Are you, are you guys thinking of a question? You going to hand her the mic? I'm just thinking out loud for Chris. Um, just that. Can you put it in a question? Then how how do you know? So if you're not interpreting the Bible literally, then what we all have heard people say, hell's not real. Hmm. So like where, what's the, what do you know is being said figuratively and what is real? Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I think to, to say we're not interpreting the Bible literally, I think, is an oversimplification. We're interpreting the Bible as it was meant to be interpreted, as, as, you know, as, as God meant it to be interpreted. And at times, yeah, Christ really is going to return in bodily form. Um, you know, it, Revelation 20 says that, that the new Jerusalem is going to come down out of, the, out of the heavens. In what sense is that literally going to be true? I mean, I'm, I'm excited to wait and find out. Um, and so... Um, yeah, sorry. Go, go ahead. No, yeah, so I mean, Jesus is coming back. Will there be a literal sword coming out of his mouth? Mm. I think it's the word of God. The word of God is sharper than a double-edged sword. It's consistently an image we use. So I think that, like, yeah, the, the things that are clear. We talk about scripture, interpreting scripture, you know. But there are we recognize is this a symbolic thing that's happening? So like, hell is clearly real. We talk about judgment time and time and time again. There's more talk about hell than heaven in in the Gospels, you know. Um, is there really a worm that will not devour? Is that figurative or literal? Actually, I'm open to either. You know, but mm-hmm. it's going to be not good. It's just so that so um, I think there's there's places where we just have to say I don't know, and, and that's that's okay. that's okay. We don't want to be figurative whenever possible, right? We want to mm-hmm. say you know what does what does the scripture say? And I think it takes some humility to say I I, I don't know. In these right. I mean, you you know you take you take hell as an example. We we do believe in hell. The Bible talks again and again about an eternal place of punishment. Oftentimes, it, it uses fire to help us understand the punishment of hell. Um, my understanding of fire is that eventually it burns up, right? It, when it runs out of things to burn, it, it, it goes out, and yet hell is eternal. So how, how can you have fire if it's, if it's literal fire that never burns out? What's going to happen when it burns everything up, right? And so there, there are some things in which, you know, only God knows the mind of God. I think that my God is big enough to fulfill many of these things literally, but he's also big enough to fulfill these things symbolically, figuratively, spiritually, and, and still be true, and still be authoritative, and still be the, 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 the word of God that we can trust and that we can depend on. But I think as Matt brought out well, um, yes, um, 
at time, you know, at some point, any and every attempt to always interpret the Bible literally, and any, no matter who you are, at some point that's going to break down, and there's going to be, you know, a level of detail or specificity that that you say, well, well, that that part's literal, that part's figurative. It's 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 really just a matter of, of you know, um, what what parts and and how much. So. Hey, um, I want to pray for us. Thank you guys for coming. I do hope you'll come back next week. We'll, we'll dive in and answer more of these questions. Thank you to those of you that stuck with us online. Um, Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, that while um, there are things we do not understand, we thank you that, that your spirit has revealed um, Jesus to us. We can trust him. We love him. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the Old and the New Testament. Give us grace with one another, with those who, who disagree, with those that are still um, seeking understanding. Uh, give us humility, even as Pastor Matt and I continue to read and learn and grow. We thank you for those that, that came tonight. I pray that they would be encouraged. pray that they would be stirred to love you, to obey you, to read the word, uh, to, to anticipate your return, and to keep Christ and, and his death and his resurrection at the center of all that we have and all that we are. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.